evidence and answers. Are science and Christianity at war? Can someone be a serious student of science and believe in the Bible? There's a popular myth that faith in Christ and science are at odds. But is this really the case? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Listen as Greg Kokel dispels that myth and reveals how Christianity and science are not enemies, but allies. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now on to part two of today's message entitled, Faith and Science, Are They Compatible? This verse all by itself ought to make it clear, given that it's the purpose of the Gospel of John, according to the writer of the Gospel of John, to give reasons and evidence for our faith in Jesus so we can be saved. That's right there in that verse. That Jesus could not be denying, when he's talking to Thomas, what John states in the next verse. So what is Jesus talking about? Blessed are those who have not, what? Seen. That's an eyeball thing going on there. What should have Thomas have done? He should have believed what his buddies told him because they were pretty reliable witnesses. And plus, he'd spent three and a half years with Jesus, watching Jesus work miracles, turn water into wine, and heal the lepers and the lame, and raise, you know, give sight to people born blind, and raise the dead, and then predict his own death and his own resurrection. That's the history for Thomas. And then Thomas, after Jesus dies, of course, they're all discouraged, but the rest of them say, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in the hole, I will not believe. Do you think that's just a little bit much? And I think that's exactly the point that Jesus was making. You're demanding to see with the eyes when there is plenty of evidence for you to have trusted based on the evidence. Okay, so now I'm using a synonym. I don't like the word faith. People say, well, faith's in the Bible. So you better like it. And I say, faith is not in the Bible. Faith is an English word. What's in the Bible is a Greek word. It's pisteo or some form. And what pisteo means is active trust. And the English word faith now has been corrupted by lots of folk, including some Christians and atheists, to make it sound like it means something else, blind or leap of. I don't want to go there. I don't want that problem, so I'm using a synonym. Trust. Active trust. Now, why would we actively trust? We would actively trust because we have good reason to do so. And so it turns out, biblically, and I'll, I'll give you illustrations of this in a moment, that biblical faith, active trust, is not contrary to the evidence, way over there, it is consistent with the evidence. The biblical pattern is, first there is evidence that gives knowledge. So you, you have enough information so you can say, you know this thing to be so. But knowing the thing is not 
enough. You have to act on what you know. You have to act in trust, active trust, before it works. Okay? Simple illustration. Tomorrow, there is a berth waiting for me on a Delta flight leaving at 2.30 back to L.A. Now, I hope it's on a jumbo jet because when I came out on the jumbo jet, there were a few extra first-class seats, which I was able to occupy on my way out. So I am looking forward to my flight back and hope I'm going first cabin. We'll see. But I have no misgivings about the capability of the pilot and the plane to take me to my destination. I have knowledge about that, but that's not enough, is it? Just because the plane is capable and the pilot is capable does not mean that I'm going to end up in L.A. What else is needed? I got to get on the plane. Right? Make sense? What do you call that? You call that active trust. There were a lot of people in the Gospels where, where it actually says of them, they believed in Jesus, but it's clear they were not trusting in him. Because they left him right away. John chapter 2, it says he wasn't entrusting himself to any of them because he knew what was in a man. Things get hard, they're gone. John chapter 6, you got a lot of that going on. These are all people who had a belief. I'm telling you, there are people filling churches every Sunday morning all over the country who believe in Jesus and have never trusted him for anything. And their lives show that. So there is a way to believe, which is an accent or an acknowledgement of certain things that are true, but then there is a step further biblical trust based on the reasons where you get on the plane and then Jesus does for you what you can't do for yourself. That's biblical faith. Now, I'm going to give you examples of this. I've got to run through them real quickly because I'm half done with my time and I'm only one quarter done with my talk. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus... Chapter 4, thereabouts, Moses gets commissioned by God to tell Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. Now Moses has a question. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? Why should the Jewish people listen to me? They're both in there. And God said, that thing in your hand, what is it? It's a staff. Throw it down. He threw it down. It became a snake. He said, pick it up. Pick it up. It became a staff again. He said, you show that to Pharaoh. And while you're there, they got that, they got that uh, Nile River. We're going to turn that to blood. And then we're going to get the frogs coming out of that river. And they're going to be hopping all over and they're getting in their pajamas. It says that, by the way. Did you know there were frogs in their pajamas? There were frogs in their pajamas. And Pharaoh called Moses over. He said, we want to get rid of these frogs. So Moses asked him, when do you want to get rid of the frogs? And, and Pharaoh said, Tomorrow? Tomorrow? One more night with Kermit. You know who Kermit is? Good. <laughs> One more night with the frogs. And then he'll bring the hail down, and we'll get the blisters going on their arms, and we'll kill the cattle, and we'll put the sun out. Why was God doing all that stuff? For one reason. Here's what it says. So that they shall know that there's a God in Israel. So that they shall know. It doesn't say that once, by the way. Doesn't say it twice, doesn't say it four times, doesn't say it six times, it says ten times. From chapter three or so until chapter 14. Ten times it says, so that they shall 
know that there's a God in Israel. And at the end of the account, chapter 14, it says something to the effect of when Israel saw all the things that God had done, then they believed Moses and they obeyed God. So, uh, so what happened? You have evidence that brings knowledge of God. And by the way, every single one of those plagues was directed against an Egyptian deity. All right? So it was a, it was a polemic. It was an argument played out for the people to see which God is stronger. The God of the Hebrews was stronger, defeated all the gods of the Jews. This gave them knowledge, and now they could act on the knowledge. Notice in this case, the miracles did not come as a result of belief. It was rather the miracles that were the foundation of the belief. This happened in Jesus' life, too. I'll get to that in just a moment. In fact, with the shortness of time, let me just jump ahead. You can make a note, 1 Kings 18... That is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And just read that account there and then just read the prayer. This is where another contest between the gods and uh, the God who answers with fire will win. Okay? And the prophets of Baal and Ashtra, there's 700 of them. They're dancing all around, cutting themselves, bleeding. And Elijah is making fun of them. Where's your God? Did he take a vacation? Did he go to the bathroom? He says that. And then he gives a short prayer. And he invites God to react so that they will, what's our word? Know who the true God is. And of course, God responds. But let's fast forward from there. So we got the Pentateuch. We've got the prophets now. We see that pattern. Let's go to the Gospels, Mark chapter 2. We got Jesus preaching there inside a house. It's the beginning of his ministry. It's a big deal. Everybody's really excited about him. People can't get in. So they go up on the roof and they dig a hole and they drop the paralytic in and Jesus sees the paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now everybody's grumbling because they think only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus, understanding what was going on, he says, what is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your pallet and go home? Now think about that for a moment. What would it be easier for me to say if there were people in wheelchairs in this room? Would it be easier for me to say, people in the wheelchairs, get up and get out of here? Or, your sins are forgiven. Well, certainly the second, right? Because if I say your sins are forgiven, who's going to know? But if I say, get out of your wheelchair and go home and people don't move, then I look like an idiot, right? Nothing happens, so they know that I don't have any authority. So it almost seems like Jesus took the easy way out. And then he says this, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, go home. And he gets up and he gets out. In other words, Jesus proved some fact in the immaterial realm, which people couldn't see by working a miracle in the material realm, which they could see. This is why they're called attesting miracles, okay? So there's another example. Notice in, so far what we have is we have some kind of evidence. In these illustrations, they are miraculous evidences, but it doesn't have to be that. Some kind of evidence that provides knowledge for the person who beholds the evidence, and then they have a, an opportunity to put their trust 
in that which they know to be true, and that act of trust is salvation. Okay, that's biblical faith. Fast forward to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given. You know the account. Holy Spirit falls on the disciples in the upper room. They come out. There's a big wind. There's a noise. There's tongues of fire. There's a commotion. In fact, people think that the disciples are drunk because they're making all this noise. And Peter takes his stand and he says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We don't start drinking until noon. This is the Holy Spirit. Well, he didn't actually say the noon part, but that was kind of his implication. It's too early to drink. This, what you see and hear, is the Holy Spirit. Now, notice, and notice that he is making reference to physical manifestations of the Spirit. That what you see and hear. He also says that this is happening because there's a prophecy in Joel that is being fulfilled right now. So he makes a reference to fulfilled prophecy. And then he says the reason it's all happening now is because Jesus, who you put in the ground, put in a cross, put in the ground, got out. You can't keep a good man down, and we are witnesses to his resurrection. And by the way, that was also prophesied by David in the Psalms. Do you realize, and for pastors here wondering how to work apologetics into your, your teaching, it's all over the New Testament. A lot of times you just don't see it there. Here's Acts chapter 2, where where Peter is giving evidence upon evidence upon evidence to substantiate a claim that he's making about Jesus. And then he closes his sermon with this, let all the house of Israel, what's our word? No, actually he adds more. He says, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they're all cut to the quick and Thousands were added to the body. Do you see the point that I'm making? I've labored over this, given you lots of illustrations, and I give you lots and lots more to show you that the Bible knows nothing of blind faith. If atheists want to define faith that way, they're welcome to it, but they can't make that our definition. If they want to deal with our understanding, they have to deal with that and not distort it. They can't push their own boutique definition on it, which they do all the time. So, when it comes to the question of faith and science, are they compatible? Well, it depends on what you mean by faith. If what you mean is belief by blind faith, well, I can see there's going to be a problem. But that's not our view. Our view is about the way the evidence works. So, when it comes to the Christian biblical understanding of faith, there is no necessary contradiction between the deliverances of science and the the act of trust that Christians are asking others to take because they've taken it themselves, because that act is consistent with evidence for it. Okay? Second, and this is going to be very quick because this is just a simple one. I said whether or not there's a conflict between faith and science depends on what you mean by faith. We just covered that. It also depends on what faith you mean. That is, what faith tradition. If you're a Hindu, the way your worldview works, and Pat covered this a little bit yesterday, is that everything is God. Now, this requires a little bit more clarification. When they say that everything is God, what they mean is that, that the only thing that exists is God. And everything else that looks like it exists doesn't exist. It is just an illusion. 
The illusion has a name. It's called Maya, M-A-Y-A. So what looks like a real world to us, which we inhabit and are part of, turns out not to be real at all. It is simply an illusion. The only thing that is real is God. And so when people think, well, everybody's God, you're God, I'm God, they think that this is ennobling. It's just the opposite. The only way that you're God is that you don't exist in what you are, so to speak, is just part of God's imagination. Lila, his games that he plays in his mind. But he's an impersonal force, so that also is kind of mysterious. Now, can you see that if you are a Vedantic Hindu and you believe that the world is just an illusion, how that kind of faith tradition would create a problem with science which functions by taking the world seriously. You see the problem there? The physical world seriously is what I mean. So is there a conflict between faith and science? Well, if, if your faith tradition is Hindu, yeah, Vedantic Hinduism. If your belief is that God is in all only because God is all and all the rest doesn't even exist, that's a problem. Incidentally, it shouldn't be surprising then that science, as we understand it as a knowledge tradition, found its roots in Western civilization. How is that? Because they believed that there was a God who made a world that we could experience and know and use. That was the mandate that Pat was talking about yesterday in Genesis chapter 1. We can use for our benefit we can learn about it, and in learning about it, can learn about the maker of that world, and then take what we've learned to subdue and to multiply and to flourish on the earth. It all fits into our worldview. Okay? Some people will say, well, intelligent design, getting God into the picture, that is a science stopper. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. The minute you got God in the picture, it's a science stopper. Even if you believe in God, even if there is a God, we got to keep him out of science because that stops the process of science. So the claim goes. Historically, it's just the opposite. God was the science starter. And it doesn't matter who you're talking about, whether it was Newton or Kepler or Faraday or, uh, you know, a whole host of others. I got the list here somewhere in my notes, but the wind's blowing. Blaise Pascal, Gregor Mendel, Copernicus, they were all Bible-believing theists. All of these people who were right at the foundation of the major disciplines of science. God wasn't a science stopper. He was the science starter, along with the conviction that God made a world run by regularities, we call those natural laws, which we could count on by and large, and therefore do, do science as we know it today. Experimental repeatability requires that those laws operate most of the time. And there's no problem with that. However, there are some things that those laws, those regularities, seem completely unable to explain. Those are the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the development of life. And the existence of the soul would also kind of generally fall in there. But that's a little different category because that doesn't require a manipulation of physical things. 
These others do. You've got the origin of the universe, then you've got life coming from non-life somehow, and then you have life developing into more complexity over time. Um, these things have stubbornly refused to be adequately explained by any appeal to the regularities of science. And in fact, quite the contrary, bear all the fingerprints of design. So notice, by the way, I'm very careful how I'm talking. I am not saying, gee, science hasn't figured it out. Golly whiz, let's just stick G-O-D in the, in, the, in the void. Let's just put God in the gap because we don't know what we're talking about, so we're just sticking God in the gap. We are not sticking God in the gap. We are using the evidence to indicate an agent in the process because an agent has the explanatory power to make sense of the physical effect in a way that natural causes cannot. Now, maybe I said that a little fast, but it's going to lead into a different point, a, a point that will, I think will make more sense of it. I mentioned that whether there's a conflict between faith and science depends on what you mean by faith. And we learned that the Christian faith properly understood is not present a problem. I said, it depends on what faith tradition you mean, and some faith traditions, particularly Eastern religions, do create a problem if you are going to take that worldview seriously for its explanatory power, but not Christianity, because Christianity was the worldview that started science. So the third question then is, it depends on what you mean by science. And this is where all the action really is. Because it turns out the word science has two definitions. Science has two definitions. The first definition you're all familiar with, it's a methodology. It's a system of learning applying certain enterprises or modalities to come to accurate conclusions about the physical universe scientific method, if you will. Nothing wrong with that. It works pretty well, it seems to me. Now, intelligent design has been faulted for not being scientific. People say, well, that's not science. Now, of course, if intelligent design was not science in the sense I just described, science as a methodology, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Because if you don't follow the right methodology, you can't be confident of the answers you come up with, okay? But there are all kinds of people committed to intelligent design who are excessively skilled in their fields. And many of them are at the top of their field. There is no fault with their methodology. In fact, this is not what people point out. They don't say, well, you know, you didn't do your experiment just right, or you didn't look closely at the fossils, or X, Y, Z. You've not done the craft correctly. They don't, that's not their complaint. Their complaint is something other. And this something other is the second definition of science. Because science is not just a methodology. It is also an applied metaphysical philosophy. Big words there, I'll explain it. It's an applied metaphysical 
philosophy. Now, the word metaphysics, the way I'm using it here, don't be scared of it. Once I give you the definition, you could impress your friends with the word. It's just a view of what is real. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, please give him a call. Locally in Hawaii, his number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure and share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.